0: So I showed it to the doctor, and well, she said it's smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking about machine learning. What sort of tasks can we put it to within a web development context? We talked to expert Charlie Gerard to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a brand new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In the first part in a new series, Jamie Corkill gives us a practical introduction to dependency injection. This series aims to provide a practical introduction in a manner that helps explain the many benefits without being hampered down by too much theory. If you're new to dependency injection or just wish you understood it better, this series is one for you. Frederick O'Brien looks towards an ad-free web, diversifying the online economy, in an article which posits that the founding principles of the World Wide Web have been warped by years of over-reliance on advertising. Fixing that imbalance and moving towards a more ethical, open web means relaying the foundations with sites showing that other ways are possible. Frederick explores some of the alternatives to advertising to help you find one that might work for you. Noam Rosenthal asks, should the web expose hardware capabilities? In an article that looks at the different approaches browser vendors take to create APIs for web apps to be able to access native hardware. Should browsers have the capability to access any available hardware? Or is it more prudent to take a conservative approach with security and privacy in mind? This article weighs the options. In How to Make More Money Selling Shopify Apps in 2021, Suzanne Skacker reminds us that developing a Shopify app and being able to sell it are two different things. While you might be a very skilled app developer... That's not always enough for Shopify merchants to decide to install a newly released and unreviewed app on their sites. If you want to give merchants a reason to install and use your Shopify app, there are four things you need to do. And this article tells you what those are. Oh, yeah! And, Kelvin O'Ramish Shone looks at getting started with the GetX package in Flutter applications. GetX is an extra lightweight solution for state, navigation, and dependency management. In this article, Kelvin takes a look at the benefits and features of GetX and how to start using it in your Flutter apps. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com articles. She's a senior front-end developer at Netlify, a Google developer expert in web technologies and a Mozilla tech speaker. In her spare time, she explores the field of human-computer interaction and builds interactive prototypes using hardware, machine learning, and creative coding. She regularly speaks at conferences and writes blog posts to share the things she learns, and most recently is the author of the book Practical Machine Learning in JavaScript for A-Press. So, we know she's a front-end expert, but did you know she once escaped from jail using a metal file she crocheted out of dreams? My smashing friends, please welcome Charlie Gerard. Hi Charlie, how are you?
1: I'm smashing.
0: So I wanted to talk to you today about machine learning, which might seem like a little bit of a strange topic for a podcast that focuses mainly on the sort of browser end of of web development. Um, I tend to think of machine learning as something that happens like in giant data centers or like laboratories with people with white coats on. Uh, It's it's, it's definitely a a bit of a sort of buzzword these days. Uh, What on earth do we actually mean when we say machine learning?
1: So, in general, the standard definition uh, would be the, it's giving the ability for uh, computers to generate predictions uh, without being told what to do. Uh, Hopefully, this will make sense in like uh, when we keep talking about it, but that's the, that's the kind of generic uh, conversation, like um, definition. You don't really tell. Uh, algorithms or models to go and search for certain things they learn through you know data that you give it and it can then generate um predictions
0: so rather than having to specifically code for certain circumstances you you kind of create a generic case where the software can can learn how to yeah. do that stuff itself yeah exactly that sounds almost a little bit creepy like <laughs> it's like it's kind of verging on that artificial intelligence sort of side of things. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, do you need to be like a hardcore math nerd or like a data scientist to do this? Or is there stuff out there? Are there like established algorithms and things that you can call on to get started?
1: Yeah, so luckily you don't need to be a hardcore math nerd or a data scientist, otherwise I would definitely not be talking about this. Uh, But there are are algorithms that have already been figured out and tools already available that allow you to use these algorithms without having to write everything from scratch um, yourself. So if we use the front-end ecosystem as a um, comparison, you can use web APIs like the, you know, user media when you want to have access to the webcam or the microphone, and you don't have to know uh, how that API was actually implemented under the hood. Uh, what matters is that you know what this API is good for and how to use it. If you want, then later on, uh, you can go and look into the source code of your favorite browser to know how it really works, but it's really not useful in the first place. And it can be useful if you want to write your own algorithm later on. But to be really honest, it's highly unlikely that you'll that you'll want to do this.
0: Okay, so it's a bit like the way you can write write CSS to position an element on a on a page. You don't care how the browser is actually doing that. You just write exactly. some nice CSS, and the browser takes takes care of it
1: yeah when you get started it's mostly something
0: like that (laughs) (laughs) that's good that's more my sort of uh, my my level of of data science (laughs) me too so So, um what are the sort of problems that uh, you can put machine learning to what what sort of, of things is it good for
1: um, so it, it depends what you want to do in, in the first place. Um, because when you want to build a certain thing, um, I would advise to first think about the type of problem that you want to learn that will then help you pick an algorithm that, that you can use to, uh, fix or to find the solution to, to your problem. So, uh, in general, I would start by. Uh, thinking about the type of problem that I'm trying to solve. And there's three main ones. I think there's probably a bit more, but in general, for what I've been trying to do and what I've read, um, there's three main ones that are um, that are mentioned. Um, and if you want me to go into this, um, there's supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and, and reinforcement learning. You also have semi-supervised, but uh, to be honest, I don't really know that much about it because I've been able to build my projects with like the three first ones. So
0: supervised, unsupervised and reinforcement, did you say? Yeah,
1: reinforcement learning.
0: Okay, so what what is, what is supervised learning? Can you give us an example of what that means?
1: Sure, so um, supervised learning, it's when um, your data set is made of features and labels and you feed that to an algorithm. So if we take an example that hopefully most people will be able to relate to, it's um, if, you, uh, if you have a house and you want to sell it, uh, and you want to figure out at what price you're going to sell your house or your car. Actually, by the way, it would be the same thing. And you would use um, a data set of houses in the same environment or the same type of houses. And um, knowing their price on the market, you would be able to use the features of your own house. So how many rooms and does it have a garden and which neighborhood is it in and things like that. These are the features and the label would be the price um, and using all of these Data set of houses uh, already around you, you are able to use a machine learning algorithm that's going to kind of learn the correlation between the features of your house and the prices on the market to then um, get the features of your house and being able to generate a price out of that. So, the most important thing is in supervised learning, you have a bunch of features and a label as well. that it, So, you're able to actually draw. Uh, correlation between between
0: the two so you would you would feed the model with like a a vast set of of data about how houses in this example that have where you know their price and that you know all these features about them um say bedrooms and uh, and what have you and it's like square footage and like i guess location would be another sort of thing that might be factored in Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So that's one of the problems in machine learning is that you can have a lot of features and some of them are not actually going to be as efficient as uh, others as well. So you could have, for example, the color of your house might actually have no correlation with the price, but you can give a bunch of features and the model will itself um, find um, correlation between the two. And then if You know, you can then tweak your your data set if you want and remove the color or you realize that the size of the garden doesn't matter or things like that. So in general, even if you feed your data set to a model, you won't have a perfect prediction the first time. Usually you tweak uh, a few different things and and you see, um, you kind of tweak it until it gets to a prediction that you think is pretty um, accurate.
0: And then once that model's created, say you you created it using data from from one city, could you then take that and feed it would you need to feed it data from another city? Would, it, would you be able to pick it up and use it elsewhere once that training is done? Or is it then specific to that data set? Or how would that work?
1: It would be, um, I think it would be specific to the data set. So it means that you can create another um, data set with the same, let's say, format. If you have an Excel, an Excel spreadsheet uh, with different columns, you would, you would be able to keep the same label and features, but you would have to um, replace it with the values of that city. Uh but in general it means that the gathering the data set um it can take like a lot of time as well. But if you already know what you did for the city of Paris, for example, and that the structure of your data set is the same, but you replace the values, it's a bit faster and you can regenerate the, the model. Uh you shouldn't reuse the same model if your if your data is uh, is different because the prices of the houses in Paris is different than a small city in Australia, for example. Um so you wouldn't wanna um, have like wrong data because your the core of your data set at first was was not exactly the same
0: so we we talk a bit, a lot about sort of models with machine learning so the model is kind of like the end result of all the um, analysis of, of the data set um, and it's then used to make subsequent predictions is that that's what the the model is yeah? yes
1: so it's um it's exactly like it's like it's a model that so it's a bit like a function to which you're gonna feed new inputs that it's never seen before but based on what it's learned on the on the training step uh, it would be able to output a
0: prediction so um supervised learning then it, it makes this predictive model from labels and features what is unsupervised learning
1: so unsupervised is a little bit of the same concept but you remove the labels um, so it, in, in this case, you can think that the, our problem of selling a house wouldn't really be a unsupervised learning problem, because if you only know features about the houses around you, but you don't have a price as a label, you can't really predict a price. A model cannot, it won't even know what a price is. So unsupervised is more when, when you have a set of data and you only have features uh, about it, you can generate more of like, Trends or clusters of things together, uh, so it wouldn't really be you wouldn't use unsupervised um, learning if you're if uh, if you want a, a particular output um, if you have a certain question like what's the price of this that's not a really good um, use of unsupervised but it's more if you want to cluster. Uh, entities together it could be uh, people or things like that so uh, usually a use case for that is recommendations like amazon recommendations or spotify recommendations like people like you also listen to this and it's more around that where the features in this case would be um, well they have data about you so they know what you listen to um, which country usually you're in Or how many times a day do you listen to something? Um, So using these features about people, they can then put you in the same cluster of the same kind of listeners or the same kind of people who buy certain things on Amazon. And using that kind of unsupervised learning, they can know what to advertise to you or what to recommend uh, that you should listen to based on people like you. So it's more of that kind of problems.
0: Okay, so this is all making a lot more sense to me now as a uh, as a, a web developer because the, these sorts of uses that uh, we've talked about, you know, um, uh, house pricing and, and uh, um, recommendations <laughs> and, and serving ads and things. You know, they, these, these are all sorts of things that we have to deal with and features that we might want to to put into uh, a site or a product or, uh, or what have you. Um, so we've got the the different types of learning based on subject matter that we're looking to predict. What I mean, are there other sorts of applications that we can put this to? Are there sort of good examples that um that people have created that uh, that, that um that make use of this?
1: Yeah. So I mean there's so many examples. That's why when I talk about predicting like the price of a house, maybe it's not something that relates to you. Maybe it's not really that exciting, but there's actually so much more um, that you can do. There's really good examples around... Um, I think the first one that I saw was around, uh, was around a dynamically generated alt text for images. So of course, it's something that you can do uh, yourself when you add an image to a site. But what if you have a site that actually has really like tons of images. And instead of doing manually, you could feed each image to a machine learning algorithm and it would generate uh, an alt text that of what that image uh, is about. And maybe the only human step would be to verify that this is correct, but it would really allow you to focused your time on building the application and you would still make uh, your website accessible by having alt text for images, but it would be kind of generated by uh, by a machine. So that's one of the examples that I saw when I got started into this, but you also have a prototype of filtering uh, not safe for work uh, content uh, where, you know, if you... Uh, and I was thinking that would actually be quite good in a Chrome extension. You could have a Chrome extension that, you know, every time that you... Um, you know, open a web page, you would just check that what's on the page is like kind of like safe content. For example, if you have kids using your laptop or things like that, you could then just hide the images or replace these images with like pandas if you want or something. Uh, But it's that kind of um, kind of application where you can use machine learning to kind of automatically do things for you so that you can you don't have to worry about certain tasks or you can just use your brain power to do other things, uh, but then there's even more advanced with an example of um, gesture recognition using the webcam that then was communicating with Amazon Alexa and like voice recognition and all that stuff. So you can really um, merge together uh, a lot of different technologies with like voice and webcam and machine learning for gesture recognition and being able to uh, interact with different technologies, but in a new in a new way. So it can really go uh, quite yeah quite
0: fun <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah that's quite fascinating, because fascinating because uh, you know we've looked at sort of like analyzing data data models as such, and now we're we're thinking about um, looking at image content. And and analysing the content of of images using machine learning, um, which is uh, quite interesting. I guess that's the sort of um, like the sort of feature that um, Facebook has. If somebody posts a, a picture that they think might be gory or show an injury or or something, and mm-hmm. it, it blurs it out, and then you have to just click to to reveal it exactly um yeah. that that sort of thing obviously you know facebook can't have um teams of moderators looking at every image that gets uploaded
1: well i hope they don't yeah <laughs> that
0: would because <laughs> that, that that would be an endless task that's
1: not a great job neither <laughs> but yeah.
0: i'll tell you I, I i used to uh work on a, a free ads website where people could post ads and uh, there was a lot of moderation involved in that uh that even me as the as the web developer had to get involved in just going through looking at all these images saying yes, no, yes, no.
1: I did that a bit as well, and I wish that at that time there had been a machine learning—you know, just a little utility tool just to do that for me. And now, now it's it's there, so that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, that that's uh, that's really great, and it's quite exciting. Then thinking about live input from uh, from a webcam and being able to to sort of analyze that in in real time, um, so that you can do gest- gesture-based. interactions is that uh...
1: yeah so at core it actually uses more uh, image classification Uh, well because your webcam you know an image is a set of pixels but then as you make certain gestures you could train a model to uh, recognize that your you know your right hand is up, and maybe you would control the mouse like this, or it it would look at the coordinate of your hand on the screen, and it would follow the mouse. Like you could really do um, whatever you want. You could maybe have color recognition, or you know you you can do really um, fun things. One a prototype that I was uh, that I built um, that I kind of gave up on at some point, but I um, I built a little. Uh, I wanted it to be a Chrome extension, but that didn't work. So I, I built like a, a little desktop app with Electron, so also in JavaScript, where I could browse a web page just by tilting my head. So it would recognize that when I tilt my head down, then it scrolls down. And when I go up, it goes up. And it was just these kind of little experiments where I, I was thinking, well, if I can you know, then turn it into a Chrome extension, it could be useful for some people. Imagine, for example, you're even if you're just eating in front of your computer and you're reading the news and I don't want my keyboard to be dirty, then I can just like tilt my head. And, but then also hopefully for accessibility, you could actually help people navigate uh, certain web pages or, you know, things, things like that. So then the, there's a lot of tools available and it's about the idea that you can come up with observing the situation around you and how could you solve some of these problems with using machine learning.
0: For machine learning, we often think of uh, languages such as Python. I think that's where a lot of the sort of development seems to, seems to happen first. Um, but as web developers, we're obviously uh, more comfortable with, with JavaScript generally. Uh, is machine learning something that we can realistically expect to do? Um, you know, I mean, like little fun examples are one thing, but is it actually useful for, for, for real work in JavaScript?
1: Um, well I mean i I think so uh, <laughs> but then I know that the most of the things that I do are are prototypes, but I think that then it depends on the situation that you're in um, at work there are there are ways to implement machine learning um, as as a developer in your day-to-day job. but what I really like about um, JavaScript is the fact that if you're already a front-end dev, you don't have to go and learn. Uh, a new a new ecosystem or a new set of tools or a new syntax a new language um, you are already in your environment that you work in every day so as you know usually when you learn that type of stuff you kind of have to start on your own on your own time if it's not your day to day job and everybody's time is precious and you don't have that much of it so if you can remove some barriers um, and and stay in the same ecosystem that you know then I think um, I think that's pretty Good, But also, you can start, the power to me of JavaScript is that you can start by building a small prototype to convince people that maybe there's an idea that needs to be um, investigated, you know, and by being able to spin up something quickly in in JavaScript, you can validate that your idea is right. And then either you can get buy-in from leadership to spend more time or more money or, or you can then give that then to Python developers if you want to build it in Python. But to me, this ability to validate quickly an idea is super important, um, especially maybe if you work for a startup and everything goes fast and you're able to show that um, that something is worth uh, looking into. I think that's, that's pretty uh, important. And also the fact that there's really a big ecosystem of tools, and there's more and more frameworks and applications of, of machine learning. Um, in JavaScript, it's not only on a web page that we can add uh, machine learning. You, as I was saying before, you can build Chrome extensions and desktop apps with Electron and mobile apps with React Native and hardware and IoT with frameworks like Johnny5. So uh, with the language that you already know, you actually have access to um, a huge ecosystem of different platforms that you can run Kind of the same experiment on, uh, and I think that to me that's pretty uh, amazing, and that's where I see the real um, the real power of um, of doing machine learning in in JavaScript. And as it gets better, um, maybe you can really integrate it in in the applications that, that we build every day.
0: JavaScript is everywhere, isn't it? For, yes. for, for, for better <laughs> or for worse, it's everywhere. <laughs> Who would have thought it? Um, I, you know, this sounds great, uh, but it also sounds like a, kind of a lot of work when you think about like the data sets and things. It, how, how on earth do you get started with, you know, with doing these sorts of tasks?
1: Yeah. Um, so there's at the moment, at least, at least with TensorFlow.js, there's three things that you can do with the framework. And um Let's say the simplest one is uh, importing an existing pre-trained model. So there's a few of them. There's different models that have been trained with different um, data sets. And I would recommend to start with this because you, you can learn the really basics of of how to actually even use the framework itself and what you can do with these models so you have certain image recognition models that have been uh, trained with different images some of that, some of them are better for uh, object recognition some of them are better for people recognition and by understand by understanding what models to use you can then um be free to build whatever you want in the constraint of of that uh, model. but I think to me that's uh, a good way to get started. like I still use pre-trained models for a lot of my experiments because it's also why would you reinvent the wheel if it's already there? Let's just use the tools that were uh, given. Um, another um, uh, then when you want to go maybe a step further, you can do what is called um, transfer learning. When you retrain an imported model, so you still use one of the pre-trained models, but then you're given the opportunity to retrain it live with your your own samples. Uh, for example, if you wanted to do um, use like a people like an image classification where you have different uh, people and you want to do gesture classification, maybe. Uh, If your model, for example, is trained with um, people who always have, I don't know, the the right hand up or something, but for your application you want the left hand, you could retrain that model with your uh, samples of a left hand, and then you would have uh, a model that is already quite trained to uh, recognize uh, right hand, but then you would add your own sample, and you can retrain that quite quickly in the browser, depending on the amount of um, new input data that you give it. It takes a bit of time, but in a few seconds, you have a retrained model that is very good at recognizing these two gestures that you can then use uh, in, in your app. So that's like usually the second step. And then the uh, a third step that is a bit more complex is when you do everything um, in, in the browser. So you write your own model from scratch and you train it in the browser and you like you really train and run and generate the model everything in the browser but in general when i the only application that i've seen for this is building visualizations when you want to visualize the process of a model being trained uh, and the number of steps that it's taking, how long it's, it's taking. And you can see the accuracy um, going up or down depending on the features that you pick and the parameters that you tweak. So I haven't really played with that one because I haven't found an application for me that I wanted to build with. But the two first steps of only using the pre-trained model or retraining it with my own samples is um, where personally I've seen, um, like I've I've had fun with that.
0: So it's uh typically is gonna be a case of creating the model um beforehand, sort of offline as it were. Um and uh and then the browser then uses that trained model or maybe adds a little bit to it, does a little bit of retraining, but but generally that model is yeah. gonna be established before it gets put into use uh in the user's browser.
1: In in general, uh, in general, yes. Then you can you can definitely create your own model. If you do it, I wouldn't recognize to do I mean I wouldn't um recommend to train it in the browser but you can do it in node.js as well if you know a little bit of node.js i've definitely created my own models but i usually run it in node.js because it's a bit more performant and then i use the generated model that i created then in the browser so
0: what sort of tools are there available uh with uh, to do this with javascript i mean you mentioned uh tensorflow.js um but what's that where's that is that from google
1: Yes. So at core, I mean, at first uh, Google had uh, the TensorFlow tool in Python. And uh, now, I mean, for the past maybe couple of years, maybe a bit more, um, they made the JavaScript version. So TensorFlow.js. Uh, but there's also ml5.js. That's a little bit of an abstraction on top. So if you um, are a bit confused or if TensorFlow.js looks a bit scary with some of the vocabulary that, that they use in their documentation. You can use ml 5 JS um, that has most of the same features, but the, um, let's say that the API or the syntax is a little bit more beginner-friendly. Um, so you can start with ML5, see if you like machine learning or if you think about a cool application. And then if maybe you have some blockers in ML5 or, or that the, um, the framework is not um, doesn't have certain things that you want to do, you can then uh, you know move on to TensorFlow.js if you want. And if you really are not interested in really writing your own code, but you just want to use tools that are already um, there, you, there are some APIs from Amazon, Google, and Microsoft to do image recognition or voice recognition as well. So if you're more interested in seeing what it can do, but you don't want to spend too much time um, writing the code, you you can ping some APIs and and try some of their tools as well.
0: So that's quite interesting. So you could maybe um, use the the browser to to catch input from a, a webcam or a microphone or or what have you, uh, and then send that up to. Um, to Amazon, Microsoft, or whoever, uh, and then just let them do the hard work.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and then you just,
0: you just benefit from the results. Uh, exactly. That sounds like a nice, a nice sort of tempting way just to get started with, <laughs> with some of the ideas. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it sounds great, um, but um, what sort of problems can we uh, uh, sort of apply this to in the, in the front end? You know, what uh, we've talked about a few little things, but are there other sort of ways we could put this to use? there's like a lot of ways
1: <laughs> uh, if I start with uh, image classification um, yes you could so you could use image uh, images from the webcam or from the webcam on your phone if you if you have like a, if you just use your website on, on your phone and you can take pictures and recognize objects and either do uh, like a small thing that i built was around recycling where uh if i don't really know where to put certain objects in which bin uh you know you have the yellow bin and the green bin. it depends on the countries they have different colors <laughs> but uh sometimes i'm not really good to like at, at knowing where to actually throw things so you could build little tools like this um that you know, live can recognize tool objects in front of you, and then classify them, and you can build certain things like this. Otherwise, you have text classification, where earlier um, this year I I used one of the TensorFlow GS. Um, model to look at comments written on GitHub issues and GitHub PRs to then classify and say, hey, if it is a toxic comment, then you have a little bot that says, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't have written this or, you know, careful, like it's a bit toxic, so we want this to be a safe space. Um, So you can use, you know, we have text classification like that. There's also sound classification, uh, if you want, where um, when Apple released, their new watch, uh, watch OS. Um, they had something to recognize the sound of running water to tell people to wash their hands for 20 seconds with the um, COVID uh, pandemic. But you can do that in JavaScript as well. And that, that thing that was really interesting, I was watching um, some of the videos and I was like, oh, I know how to do that in JavaScript. And I built a little... Prototype. Um, I don't know if it runs on the Apple Watch. Maybe I don't have one, so. <laughs> but I know it runs on my phone and my and my laptop. But and then that can start some ideas for other people as well. Where a friend of mine, uh, Ramon Huidobro, I uh, saw Milk on Twitter. Uh, he had this idea of uh, he's been in a lot of uh, online conferences this year, and one of his problems is that when he claps, you know, to applaud somebody then he doesn't have the time to add the clap emoji on the chat uh, as well. And what he wanted to do is listen to the sound of his claps, and that would send automatically clap emojis in the chat. And it's like little things like this. But um, if you want like maybe an application really more uh, maybe useful in your day-to-day job is around um, predictive prefetching. That's also using machine learning in the front end where looking at the analytics of your website, so which pages are usually looked at, after which, and things like this. You can prefetch resources in advance based on the page that is most likely to be visited um, after. Uh, that's something that I've been wanting to look into uh, this whole year, but I didn't have uh, the time. But you can that allows you to really improve the performance and the UX of, uh, of your page, and you don't request resources that you're not going to need. So that can really... Uh, improve, and that's like an application of of machine learning as well. So you can do fun stuff, you can do more useful things. But um, like, there's no wrong application. Oh, I mean, there can be wrong applications. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I take it back. But uh, but I'm I'm just saying that if you're really getting started into it, uh, there's nothing wrong with starting with something fun, and then that can spin up a few ideas of something that you can do on the job as well.
0: Uh, I guess the the sort of really useful thing here is sort of knowing that these sorts of things are possible. Um, and that can lead us to creative ways of solving problems that we, you know, we couldn't do on the web before. You know, uh, traditionally we we sort of build things like like moderation of user submitted content, and it's been uh, it's been fairly primitive, and we've basically had to have human beings look at stuff and make decisions about it. Mm. Um, but with access to machine learning, in in that example, we could hand more of that over. Um, and then just have humans look at the edge cases for, you know, for example, things that didn't have a convincing, uh, a convincing match. Mm. Uh, and of course, that's going to then be it's put a bit of time upfront to to develop that sort of thing and get it in place. But then you think of the savings mm. of not having human beings <laughs> manually checking stuff. Definitely, um, yeah. Know, sort of, so um, what sort of things can you see this being put to use for in the future as, as the technology improves?
1: To me, maybe the... In the future, I think as models get um, smaller to load and they get more performant and we probably uh, improve the data sets that they're trained with, um, I'm hoping to be able to see tools that are more more helpful. I mean, personally, I'm interested in uh, the tiny machine learning models that can run on microcontrollers to build stuff. But if we stay in more of the front-end uh, world, I'm hoping about maybe... Better voice recognition, or um, because I feel like, well, we're used to navigating the web with a trackpad or a keyboard. But at the moment, uh, you, there is still voice recognition, but it's not always super accurate, or it's not accurate with accents, for example. Um, and I'm hoping that as we develop better models that are smaller, people won't be so scared to add it to their website because it won't impact the performance that um, that badly. Um, and yeah, to me, I I'm interested in in using machine learning in stuff like predictive uh, prefetching, so that we can build like smarter smarter websites that improve or, like the experience over a few different like on a spectrum. Because for the users, it's better because the page is going to load faster. But for the perf- performance in general of your site, it's better. But also, uh, let's say if you we think about sustainability, not requesting useless resources is uh, helping as well. The Carbon footprint of of your website, uh, but then there's also the carbon footprint of machine learning models. That's not very <laughs> good. so <laughs> maybe let's not talk about this. <laughs> uh, but I think I think for the for the future, I'm just hoping to to have models that are maybe more performant or or, or smaller so that people will be more likely to give it a try because let's say there'll be less blockers for people to to go into this, but
0: let's see. Um, are there known sort of limitations and, and constraints that we should be aware of before embarking on a machine learning project?
1: Um, yeah, the, I mean there are. I think no matter if you do it in, in JavaScript or or Python, there are um, limits. Uh, I think if you do want to do uh, to build something that's very custom, that there is no pre trained model for, uh, one of the limits is that you're you might need quite a lot of um, data and not everybody has that so if you're doing something on your own as a side project and you can't find a data set it would actually take you quite a long time to get one that's um, that would allow you to generate like good predictions you can build a small data set but it, you will you will not be able to uh, push it to like production or something if you don't actually have a data set that's consistent um, enough so I think um, the the amount of data that, that you need um, Training the models can take a lot of time. That depends on the amount of data that you feed it, but depending on the application that you want to do it for, I mean, or build it with, um, you have to be aware that, that it can take a lot of time. I remember when I got started and I was doing it in, in Python and I wanted to, I, don't, I forgot what I wanted to do, but uh, my model was running for like, oh, it was training for eight hours and at the end, it told me that it failed because of something, and I was like, "You're telling me at the end after eight hours?" But see, so it can be a bit uh, frustrating, and and it's uh, I think it uh, it can still be experimental, and you have to be um, comfortable with it not being a, a pure science. Not everything is always um, accurate. Uh, if as at the moment, as some of the models are still. They can be a few megabytes. Um, If you are building something that, you know, is most likely going to be seen on a mobile screen, uh, you might want to take into consideration that, well, you don't want to load all that data over a 4G network. You might want to warn people that they should be on Wi-Fi or the battery use or the type of phones can't really handle all of this as well. Um, And then more uh, more seriously in terms of liability, um, you, you do have to understand why, why your model predicted a certain things. And that can be difficult because a model is a black box. It's a function that you actually, you don't really know what's inside. Uh, you know what it predicted. And based on what you're building, um, if it makes certain decisions about, I don't know, who gets a loan or, you know, who goes to prison based on whatever, um, you want to be able to explain, um, like, how you got to that decision if you decided to use machine learning to kind of abstract some of the work so it wouldn't be done by people. Uh, that can be quite um, dangerous. So you kind of have to know what you're doing. Uh, and in the end, just remember that it's not perfect. I think people sometimes assume that because we talk about artificial intelligence is just as smart as people. But no, it's still computers. It's still data that is given to them and they make up some predictions and. Somehow we just trust it, which is scary. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's some of the limitations. Yeah.
0: Yes, I guess it's still it. It may be it may seem like it's intelligent, but it is still artificial. Yes. And there have been some um, quite high profile cases in recent times, uh, particularly around some of the machine learning stuff with image recognition, that have raised issues of like bias in, in machine learning. Uh, you know, for example, uh, um, a model only detecting humans if they have light skin. Um, are there like ethical considerations that we should be making here?
1: Um, to me, that's like a really interesting side of machine learning. Um, and that's that's also why, you know, before I was saying that, remember that it's not perfect. Sometimes I feel like people draw like a real difference between, um, like they think that the machine just happens to be right and know all the things by itself, but it's still something that we program. Um, and... When an algorithm products or generates um a biased result um the the algorithm just generated things based on the data it, that it was given before so uh, an algorithm itself or a model is not gonna know the difference like the the difference in society between like how you know light skinned people or dark skinned people like it doesn't know and it doesn't care. Uh, what it the only thing that it knows is that I got given pictures of certain people and I'm just gonna generate based on what I know. And the, the data set that is given to the algorithm is in general generated by us by people. Uh, either it that it maybe it's not used the developer using the model, but at some point, somebody put together. Um, uh, a data set. And I think it's important to remember that we are responsible for making sure that the, um, the predictions generated are as fair as possible and as unbiased as possible. And that kind of creates interesting questions then, because then you can go into like, well, what is fair uh, for people? That, or if we think about my example of the GitHub action that I created to look at toxic comments, well, maybe what I think is toxic is not the same thing as what other people think is toxic. Um, and it's it's interesting, like there, there's a really interesting collection of, of videos uh, by MIT Media Lab around the, um, the ethics and governance of artificial intelligence. And I find that fascinating because it's not about telling people, oh, you're a bad person because you used an algorithm that's biased or or you're a bad person because you produced an algorithm or a model that's biased. It's more about um, raising certain questions and helping you realize, well, actually, maybe I, I could be better because that surfaced that, yes, I forgot to add diverse people to my data set. Let me, let, let me fix that. You know, it's not really about say let's not use that model ever again. Just like retrain it, like realize that, oh, I forgot this. I can retrain it and we can make it better um, and that's something that I, I definitely think is interesting. And you have companies really trying to improve on that. Uh, when the issue of Google, who was translating certain neutral languages into gendered uh, languages, and all of a sudden engineer was male and cook was female. And now, they, now they've now they really um, reworked on that. And it's a lot more biased. And they uh, use the they pronoun as well. Like They also really try to... Um, try to make it better. But then you have also weird stuff where I think IBM had created um, a data set called Diversity in Faces that was supposed to be one of the very few data sets that actually had a diverse spectrum of people. Uh, But when I tried to find it to use it, it's not available anymore. So I'm like, oh, you had this good initiative. Like you tried to do better than a lot of other people and now people can't actually use it. So (laughs) I don't know. But I think that question is is really... um, fascinating because it can really help us um, improve. And then we improve the tool as well that we're using. But, yeah.
0: I guess it, it, it pays just to be really careful uh, to be balanced and be diverse when selecting data for training models. Yes. I guess that's what it comes down to, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're building a tool for the public. I mean, in general, right? If, you, if it's a tool that everybody can use, so it should reflect um, everybody really. Or you should be really clear and say this tool can only be used by these people because the model was trained that way, but it's not, we don't, it's not really what we, um, what we should do. And it, it, I mean, I understand that sometimes it, um, if you've never thought about it, it can be, uh, I don't know, you can see it as maybe like a burden. Like I hate that people would think of it that way, but it's also, if you spent all this time, like maybe writing your own algorithm or generating your own model and doing all of this work, you can't tell me that finding a diverse data set is the hardest part. (laughs) I I don't think it would be. So I'm I'm hopeful. And I think as more people um, raise concerns about this, and I think people are watching this space, which is really good, uh, because if companies don't do it, they'll do it if we tell them that it's not right. And if you want the adoption of machine learning models, you have to make sure that everybody um, can use them. So, yeah.
0: So of the, of the various tools that are available for doing uh, machine learning in JavaScript um you've worked a lot with TensorFlow.js and uh you've written a book about it. Um yeah. tell us about your book.
1: Um yes, I did I did write a book uh this year about uh TensorFlow um JS so to help JavaScript developers uh, learn more about machine learning and uh understand it better and I think the the main goal of this book um was to help people dive into machine learning, but making it less scary. Because I know that at first I thought about machine learning as this big thing like completely different from, uh, you know, the web development that I would never understand anything about. I did think that I would have to uh, write my own algorithms and really understand math. And uh, as I've dived into this over the past, you know, two and a half years, I realized that it's not really like that. And I was hoping that writing this book could help people um, realize as well that they can do it and what can be done um, and there's also a few projects so that you can really put in practice what you're uh, what you're learning but it was really aimed at um, people who haven't really looked into ml yet or who just are curious um, to learn more and um, yeah I'm we're not, I'm not really diving into the uh, algorithms like the the source code of the algorithms but it's really more telling people um, trying to understand what an algorithm does um, and and which one to use and for what like a bit of what we where we just um, talked about, but it's explaining concepts in a, in a clear way. So hopefully it's less um, scary and people want to hopefully like dive a bit more into it.
0: So it's called um, uh, Practical Machine Learning in JavaScript and is available from Apress, uh, and we'll, we'll link it up in the show notes. Um, so I've been learning all about machine learning today. Uh, what have you been learning about lately, Charlie?
1: Um, so that's a new thing that I'm diving into that is kind of related to uh, machine learning uh, or I will use machine learning with it, but it's uh, digital signal processing uh, that I want to use with machine learning. So as we talked about the fact that machine learning needs uh, a lot of data if you want to build your own models, um, uh, sometimes it's you have to filter your data to actually get the right uh, prediction. And if we think about it, um, let's say that Let's, let's think about noise-canceling headphones. So you, <laughs> in your day-to-day life, you have a lot of noise uh, around you. Let's say you're trying to watch uh, a video uh, on the train and there's people talking around you and there's a the sound of the train and what you want to focus on is uh, the sound of the video. So with digital signal processing, that would be a little bit like your noise-canceling headphones where there's some noise around that you don't care about. So there's some kind of data that you don't want to listen to and the noise-canceling headphones allow you to focus on uh, the sound coming from the video uh, on your phone so that you can really truly listen and focus on that. So what I'm doing with digital signal processing is that I have a bunch of data from uh, a piece of hardware, like an Arduino, but I know that there's a lot of it that I might not care about. Um, So I want to filter out the things that I don't care about so that then I can feed that to uh, a model and get better predictions about gestures or, or things like that. So you have your... Data signal that you can either transform or filter. Um, it's when you, it's like when you use the um, the Web Audio API to get sound from your microphone. You can either see the arrays of numbers on your dev tools, or you can transform it into a spectrogram to see the picture of the sound. And that's a little bit of, of that. To have a better uh, prediction for gestures based on hardware data, I can transform that that signal, and I. I've been wanting to do this for like a couple of years, but it's um, sometimes it's something that I know nothing about. So it takes time to learn. Uh, but now that I know a bit more about the machine learning side, I can learn the digital processing side and I'm getting there. Like, I like this moment where I'm like, oh, I start to get it because I spent all this time on it. Um, and yeah, that's that's really interesting. I'm kind of going a bit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Charlie is such a nerd. (laughs) If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Charlie, you can find her on Twitter, where she's at devdevcharlie. And her personal website includes links to lots of her experiments and projects and is really worth checking out at charliegerard.dev. Her book, Practical Machine Learning in JavaScript, is available now, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us today, Charlie. Did you have any parting words?
1: Remember to have some fun. Uh, (laughs) We talked a lot today about, like, Fun uh, fun stuff and practical stuff. But all of it, just if you're willing to look into this, remember to have some fun no matter what you decide to build. This is Smashing.
0: And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends.
1: Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at SmashingMag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket
0: by the cat food.